Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we talk about the latest in zero-knowledge research and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. This week, I speak with Jacob, Mark, and Marco from the Tezos community. We chat about the network, the validator community, governance, and how they're looking to incorporate zero-knowledge proofs and other privacy tech into their system. But before we start in, I want to say thank you to this week's sponsor, Trail of Bits. Software makers and vulnerability researchers have a strange and contentious relationship when it comes to finding and reporting bugs. It's a relationship that has historically had a volatile imbalance of power that can be flipped in an instant. Disclosing too much information about a discovered vulnerability could ruin the reward for a third-party researcher's hard work. At the same time, improper disclosure of a vulnerability could permanently damage the reputation of a software company. And this is where the communication breaks down between the two parties. Trail of Bits has partnered with John Hopkins University to use zero-knowledge proofs to eliminate this need for trust between vulnerability researchers and tech companies. This is part of a larger effort funded by DARPA called CIV, with the goal of this being to push zero-knowledge proof research forward. For their part, Trail of Bits will work to supply researchers with software that can produce ZK proofs of exploitability. If you are interested in their work or you want to find out more about this project, keep an eye on the Trail of Bits blog. A blog post is set to land this week or next, and we'll be adding the link in our show notes. So thank you again to Trail of Bits for supporting the show. And if you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to Zero Dollars Podcast and do give us a review or a like wherever you're catching this. So now here's our episode on Tezos. So today we're going to be talking about Tezos. And I have three members of the community here to help kind of help me understand a little bit about Tezos the governance, the validator community, and also how they've incorporated privacy into the system. So I'd like to welcome to the show Jacob Arluk, who's the co-founder of TQ, as well as Mark Bernardo and Marco Stronati, both from Nomadic. So welcome to the show, guys. Yeah, thanks for having us on. I think, I'm, I, I think because you're from two organizations and because there's, there's three of you, I think it's really important for us to understand kind of who you are. Let's start with you, Jacob. Um, you are the co-founder of something called TQ. What is TQ and what is your relationship to Tezos? So I've um, been involved in the project for about two years. Um, so originally was involved with the foundation somewhat you know, around the launch and helped um, with some of the operational needs around launch uh, back in 2018. And then uh, basically decided that we, you know, there was sort of no entity focused on, you know, adoption in the ecosystem broadly at the time. And so we decided to spin up, an, you know, a company in, in, in the U.S., in, in New York, uh, basically that would be focusing on Tezos adoption. Cool. And so like the Tezos organization, though, isn't it mostly in France? Is that sort of the main spot of development? Well, I, I guess it's sort of all over the, the world, but basically a lot of independent like teams, you know, with, between like, you know, the folks in, there's certainly like a huge, massive share of the project is in France for sure. Okay. There's also folks in US, some folks in Asia um, and other parts of Europe. So Germany, a lot in, a lot in Eastern Europe, um, you know, there's some in Ukraine, Russia, et cetera. Um, but yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of activity throughout Europe, um, some activity in South America. Okay, cool. All right, so Mark and Marco, you're both from Nomadic Labs. Tell me what Nomadic Labs are and what you do there. Yeah, so maybe it actually, can... it's the first time that I I heard somebody refer to Nomadic Labs as plural. Oh, <laughs> sorry, is it Nomadic Lab? <laughs> no, no, you're. I, I'm not sure actually. I need to check. <laughs> anyway, for now, there's one lab. Let's say that we're ambitious, so we call it okay. labs. Maybe one day it's going to be more than one. So it, basically, from the starting of the the start of the project, uh, the the core of the developers that developed the first prototype and then that work on it until the launch, they were in Paris for some historical reasons, I guess. And because basically the, the language, so the language that was chosen for the project and for the prototype, it's a camel and it's kind of a Frenchy thing, uh-huh. a little bit. I mean, it's all over the world, but I would say it's kind of a Frenchy thing. So there were there is a bigger concentration of, uh, of developers here in Paris. And you're based in Paris as well, I guess. Uh, yeah, I'm based in Paris. Cool. Uh, so the companies, there are several people working uh, abroad. 
but yeah, most of us are here. Nice. And what's your role in Nomadic Lab? Uh, so I've been there almost from the beginning. It was uh, January 2018. And uh, I would say I'm a senior developer, so I worked on uh, a lot of different things. The, the, the stuff that I liked the most was working on the amendments. So we'll, maybe we'll touch on that later, but Tezos has this ability to uh, evolve its own economic protocol. That's what we call an amendment. And uh, so you need to write these things and make sure that they're correct. It's kind of a complex uh, procedure. So I, we, have, we have three of them and I worked on all of them. So what about you, Mark? What's your role at Nomadic? So I'm a cryptographer. I uh, was hired to a uh, year and a half ago to work on the sapling integration, which we're going to talk about. So we are finishing on that and then we'll work on privacy in a more general uh, did all of you did did all of you work kind of in blockchain or decentralized tech before joining this these projects or were you working in other spaces before that? Uh, I was definitely not um, in the so I've been um, I don't know if you're going to say an enthusiast or follower of the space, especially in actually the project that sort of reignited my interest in like you know so it was basically in 2016 was Zcash actually like oh, seeing cool. it it actually launch was like, I was like, wait a minute, stuff's going on again in this space. You know, there's actually cool stuff happening again. Um, but no, I wasn't uh, in, in the shoe before. Uh, yeah, me neither. I was very far from, actually not, not that far, but sorry, I was working in research and mostly on privacy and unsafe technologies. So differential privacy and stuff like that for geolocation systems. So actually I was crossing path with a lot of people working on blockchain, especially in my last year of postdoc. But I didn't see the, the spark there, but uh, yeah, it came right after. Cool. And uh, so me neither, I, I used to do a PhD in crypto okay. at a payment company, which uh, wasn't really decentralized at all. In a payment company, like sort of a more traditional place. Yeah, in Genico. Okay. So what was it about this project, Tezos? Like what, what was the spark that got you to join this particular group this particular um network or i don't i guess community is a better way to say it yeah i feel like at least for myself is like really intellectual interest around the the governance mechanism originally and like just gen generally thinking that, that there are a lot of ideas in the project that i thought like were actually things that do help remove some of the barriers to like adopt you know adoption of these technologies mm -hmm. so basically i've always thought of Tezos as trying to keep the good things about blockchain, but like in, and the actual promise of it, which is of like keeping having this censorship resistant settlement layer, whatever you want to call, um, while also being able to evolve, while also being able to represent stakeholders, have safe, secure smart contracts, stuff like that. And obviously the whole proof of stake thing, which is all sort of tied into that. But it's, it's not that it's like a better Ethereum or better this or better that. It's more like it's sort of seeing it as like, really trying to get at the root of like why these things are hard to adopt in in um, you know sort of the broader world which is uh, in general like that they get stuck at a certain point in time and don't evolve past there or that they um, you know that the con smart contracts are not something that you know large institutions or you know sort of people handling large amounts of value feel comfortable mm. you know, using hmm. yeah um, for me it was um, uh, I don't know it was a sort of a miracle. The, I don't know, I was doing a post for somebody that knows research, uh, you know, that postdocs are kind of a dark time in your life. And so it was indeed. And you always get this feeling that, so you work very hard, you do something, you try to solve problems that are so hard and you think they're very useful. At the same time, you get the feeling, this feeling that nobody really cares. And, mm. and especially, I mean, in the US is not too bad, but here in Europe, uh, you're not paid a great salary. You don't have a lot of security. Like you don't know what's going to happen in six months. And so it's very, it's pretty tough. So I was in this spot and then uh, I see, and I was looking for a job at that point. I was like, okay, I'm going to do whatever, what I have to do to pay the bills. And then I see this email on the, the Camel mailing list saying, saying, yeah, we're looking for developers for this project. And I'm like, oh, I don't know what that is. So I went to a meeting and so somebody basically told me, so the, it was in a cafe actually, because there, there was no office or, or anything. So basically, the this person told me well you can work on whatever you like we have you can choose between this menu of super interesting topics uh, you can do whatever you want you're going to work with brilliant colleagues and you're going to be paid a normal salary and everything's going to be awesome 
I was really freaked out. Like I was like, is this too good to be true? I'm sure there's a catch. Like, they, will, I don't know, they will ask for my firstborn at some point or something like that. Uh, hasn't happened yet. Everything's been great. So it was a big uh, turning point. And it was, everything was true. Like every interesting problems in computer science uh, is in blockchain right now. And very smart people, very smart colleagues and great cool. uh, both you, Marco, and Jacob, you both joined quite early. As I understand, Mark, you joined a bit later. Yes. Is that correct? Okay. So I want to talk to you, Jacob and Mark and Marco, about that beginning. So were you there? Like, okay, the, the history of Tezos that I know is that it had a massive ICO during the summer of crypto, whatever we call that. And it was it was one of the first that had really kind of extraordinary numbers. I remember that. And like, it's one of the first POS systems to launch as well, to actually be live. So at what point in that sort of those two polls, did you join this project? Were you there right from the start or were you there after the ICO or like at what point? So there's this whole thing that happens in between there um, (laughs) that maybe a couple months after that, May or June of, uh, 2018 or so and so maybe the foundation was fixed in like when I say fixed like you know basically they removed <laughs> the uh, the the sort of interesting uh, leadership there um, in uh, sort of probably late February so it was like two or three months after that okay um, and uh, yeah I mean at the time there was like very almost it was just like a hodgepodge of people kind of doing stuff there was very little in the way of like any kind of you know, clear organization or anything. It was sort of just people going at it in different directions. Um, and one thing that's really crazy and a lot of people don't know about in the project broadly is that, so basically everyone had always talked about like Tezos, the government that does all this governance stuff, you know, and we're not. And we actually um, were like, well, wait a second. Like no one's actually looked at like what this actually means. Like, and so I would go back between New York and Paris, like um, a good amount. And I, Mark and I are basically you know, reviewed, in fact, I think with Arthur as well, um, you know, the the way that the actual amendment process worked. So, and then we, you know, released a blog post about it. Like people had always talk about, oh yeah, it has this amazing governance mechanism. You can submit an invoice and get all this stuff. There was like very little back then in the way of like, wait a second, like how do you actually, how does it actually, like, did anyone look in the protocol to see like, you know, does it actually work the way people described? Yeah. Uh, and then the other thing was like, so wait a second, if we do this, like, Practically speaking, what has to happen operationally or like, you know, in, in general, you have these 450 validators over the world. Like, how are they going to engage with this um, this amendment process? So, so there was sort of, yeah, so there's a lot of that early on, things like that where there were sort of like things that were promised. Yeah, or just like stuff that was promised in a white paper, but like, yeah. like you have to figure out like how you actually do it, you know? So let's actually, let's... Marco, I want to hear about when you joined, but I also do want to explain maybe to our listeners who might not know that much about the project that early hiccups that the project maybe hit, the early kind of conflicts within the foundation. So the ICO happened. There was a foundation created, a Swiss foundation, that I guess held that ICO. And somewhere between that happening and you joining, there was something that happened. What happened? Well, I, I really recommend reading the Wired article from like mid 2018. There was like there was like a cover story of Arctic, of Wired. Um, like basically, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I don't I don't know that we have to relitigate it again. Um, again, it's been covered like many many different times, um, but a lot of it stems from you know just stems from uh, like basically just the leadership having like some very in of the foundation at that you know at that time having very uh like self-serving priorities yeah (laughs) that way so a lot of that stuff is real um but like i don't like i i can't really i mean i wasn't really there for that so like i don't really like i like there's a pretty clear understanding of like the general tenor of what happened but i would recommend reading the Wired article and other stuff about it and to, to make an opinion, it's like pretty clear that, you know, <laughs> there was like somebody who did something that they, you know, and behaved in ways that they probably shouldn't have. Um, and uh, like, you know, it's really tragic because there was really no, like, you know, every, you know, 
sort of was not even in the end self-serving. It was like mm. just self-destructive, you know, on that, on that person's part. But um, yeah. And there's like, you know, all the different supporting actors. Okay. Marco, what, what point did you join and what do you make of all of that? <laughs> I know, the way I lived it. Uh, so I, oh, yeah. uh, I joined and uh, we were in the high of the storm at that point. <gasps> Oh. So I joined hoping that we will have uh, offices and uh, people coming in and a nice uh, building, a nice startup. Uh, and in the end, it was a big mess. So we didn't, uh, we, I think we didn't get paid for like a month or two. Oh, man. Um, but I mean, we were, as developers, actually, we were really lucky and we were really shielded by all the mess by some amazing people, administrators that uh, uh, that managed all the mess and managed to make us work like really without a problem uh so we were so we were um a bit worried but at the same time we kept doing our thing and we were sure that things would go well eventually and they did so cool so coming out of that like so there had been this sort of you know big high of this ico then some big publicity in a sort of a more negative way but like and actually at what point did tezos launch what date was that so it was uh, so because of all this uh, mess with the foundation and the delays. Uh, so we were. So I think we could have launched after six months, more or less, just finishing touches. And because of this mess, we delayed everything until uh, July twenty eighteen. What like nomadic? Where does that was that the original company building it, or is that a different organization? <laughs> so basically, there was a kernel, I would say, of four developers that wrote like uh, 99% of the original mainnet. They actually wrote too much, I think. They should, they should have stopped earlier. Why? <laughs> they over-engineered some parts. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, but anyway, they're, they're very good and they were very excited, I guess. So they, they, they wrote a bunch of stuff. And it was all good. It was just very hard for us coming after trying to, <laughs> to, to make everything Learn it fit all. in your brain. Yeah, Got it. Steep okay. learning curve. So um, yeah, so these four developers they were working for another company that uh, it was and it's still called Camel Pro, a very good company for Camel development. They do a bunch of uh, very good products, and then they because they needed to hire new people and they wanted to to build something large, uh, they decided to to just uh, spin off a new startup and they started hiring uh, uh, people. Cool. On Camel developers. Who are they? Who are they that you're talking about? Who are the they's? So I think, so uh, I so uh, Arthur, that is uh, the founder of the project, was very involved in that. And yeah. then there's uh, so Benjamin Canute is uh, the was one of the original architects, and he's still the CTO of Nomadic. Cool. Um, then there was uh, Pierre Chambard, which is still working at Tokamot Pro, but he still collaborates with us for some topics where he's he's very good at. Uh, then there was uh, Grégoire Henry. It's, it's really tough to, to alternate French and English accent. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so Grégoire was um, was with us for another year and a half, I think, and then he decided to do something else. And I'm sure I'm missing somebody. Anyway, I don't know. I, I'll, I'll get slapped at the office uh, next time. I the office. Yeah. Cool. And so what is then... Tezos, what is it? What like maybe what would how would you describe this network that you built in a nutshell? So I think um, the first thing to understand is like think of it as sort of several things at the same time. So the first one is sort of I don't want to call it like an organism, but basically this sort of self aware or like self um, self governing economic infrastructure or like you know I mean at the base levels I guess like form of computing system. Although the world computer mantra of like early Ethereum is obviously has a lot of like sort of dark marks nowadays, but like, I think in general though, like there's definitely, it's definitely, um, I think from the beginning always been sort of positioned as a cryptocurrency as well, like more, like more so a cryptocurrency than smart contract platform or world computer type thing. And so like, even if you look at Mickelson, like originally it was designed to be like a better formally verified, easily formally verifiable version of Bitcoin script. (laughs) Um, Uh, and, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I All mean, right. it's turning complete, et cetera. But like, and and the the move, the transition of the project has been over the past couple of years has been towards at least enabling, you know, like higher level like languages and things like that that make it easy for people to build more expressive smart contracts and stuff like that. 
like you have to understand the white paper comes from 2014 and I think was even started oh. in 2013. So like it, it basically means that like, you know, this was really re- reacting to Bitcoin. Um, like, like I believe that Arthur, when he wrote it, he, um, he was he was working on it and then like the ethereum white paper came out and he basically like adapted his white paper based on like it wasn't you know like this wave of 2016 2017 projects where like you know it's like just like a bunch of like stanford phds who realized that they could you know basically like convince anyone with a a a checkbook to fund them just because they had a better consensus algorithm like tesla's actually trying it's like has the approach of like trying to be better at blockchaining wow. <laughs> like it's trying to be better at blockchaining better not just in terms of technology but like in terms of having a stronger like social consensus while also having better you know trying to have better mm-hmm. technology like it's like that kind trying to have that combination i think that, that that's the way i would explain it that's interesting i didn't i didn't realize that the inception of it was so early yeah i think what sets it apart from other projects for me is the distressing uh, the decentralization aspect and this is something that arthur has been uh, really uh, thorough about and and uh, i think he's very he's very right uh, this idea that uh, you shouldn't so that's that's why at the beginning of the when you said ah is are most of the people working in france and i was like oh no no not that <laughs> like uh, we we really try to to be open and to have uh, as many people as possible join the project and build on the project. So uh, I don't want to be labeled as the the French uh, blockchain. Uh, French Ethereum is the other. <laughs> yeah. The two the two the two the two labels on Tezos are Ocaml Bitcoin and uh, and French Ethereum. So oh, man, <laughs> that's good. So what? Uh, so even for Ocaml, so we we were very ha- we were very happy to learn that there are. Uh, people building a, a new shell in in Rust, so oh, we're, nice. they're definitely welcome. So no problem. Um, so yeah, so basically, whenever I start a presentation, I say I'm going to tell you the way I I've lived and seen things. It's just an angle. There are many, and so for sure, I'm going to be biased. On this is not Tezos. This is uh, the way I see Tezos. For the for the first like I don't know if it was the first year of the project, but um, from from launch, but. Um, I think there was like a huge sort of dark mark on using the word roadmap. Like the whole point of the white paper is that you don't have a, like that there's no canonical roadmap. Um, and so everyone was like, sort of like, there can be no roadmap, no roadmaps allowed. <laughs> um, and um, I think there's definitely been a transition back towards wanting like some amount of clarity from different developers on like what, you know, what's coming when I, I'm sure we can cover that in this, mm. this chat as well, but um, that's an interesting component too. Is like there's a lot of purism around the language, and a lot of purism around wanting to make sure that people understand that like Tezos isn't a company, like because there's really only two chains, arguably, that have meaningful perception as like independent organisms and or independent distributed systems, or whatever. Like and those are really Bitcoin, Ethereum, right? Um, and if you want to get into that bracket, you know, basically the only way you can do it is by um, not being a company like mm-hmm. you know otherwise you're Tron or you're like you know one of these things that will blow up like a firework for five years maybe at, but then like you know they're yeah, never going to yeah. be you know a settlement layer for the world or something like that but I guess this sh- you sort of are highlighting a bit of a challenge of this so you want a decentralized system you don't want to you're like there's there's sort of fear of roadmaps or some sort of like single vision because and you have this it sounds like, I mean, there's an upgradability aspect where like there's governance that I guess is voting on um, decisions on how, you know, everything's going to evolve without maybe this supreme leader type. So how do you do that? Because that's a big challenge. Like, how do you like, so, so has, has, has the attitude evolved from where it was this purist attitude of like, it must not have a roadmap to having a roadmap because You've accepted that there has to be a vision. Who who can have the vision? So I think everything was good the moment the most of the community understood uh, what's an what's an amendment. So the moment that you formalize uh, governance and you say, okay, this is our these are the rules by which we're gonna evolve, mm-hmm. then everybody can start their own roadmap. So after that, we could say, uh, no, this is nomadic labs roadmap, and you know that is not Tezos roadmap because it depends on the amendments. Uh, so TQ can have their own roadmap and other creeping labs can have their own. And we will, they will need to meet at some point because uh, the governance demands so. 
yeah. but after after people understood uh, that there nobody could uh, decide where Tezos goes, everybody could say, "I think Tezos is going this way. I, I'm working for Tezos to go in this way." Interesting. Actually, you just mentioned Cryptium Labs. Can you share a little bit about like who are the major players in this ecosystem? So uh, I can talk about development. So because these are the people I work with. Uh, so we mostly work with Cryptium Labs and uh, with some people from TQ. And then there are a few other developers scattered around in Japan and Canada and elsewhere. But these are the sort of the biggest entities I, can, I work with at least. And cool. I'm sure there are tons of others. Also the language teams, right? So like SmartPy and Lego and some of these other yeah. folks contribute as well. Like quite a lot to not, like they're not just building language. Like what happens a lot of times in Tezos is you have people go to build something, they find some area in core that they think should be improved from that would make their project easier or better or whatever. And that's just like very common with the language folks. So um, the folks at Lego and, and SmartPy are, um, you know, obviously, you know, they're, they're seeing lots of different ways to improve things and contributing, I think, as well. You're calling them language folks. Are they working on, you call them Mickelson's? Yeah, no, that's, no, that's correct. Mickelson is the language that in the end is going to be interpreted on the, on the blockchain. So, and then you can write your programs in whatever else you want, as long as it complies to Mickelson. That's it. Nice. Are the founders like this? Are the founders still involved with this project? Like how? Because I know that there's been some talk about this, and I wondered if you could just like share. I'm, ha I'm happy to take that one. So sure. that that's I, I think there's a very big misunderstanding of what, that. What like okay? If you go look at, for example, you go on GitLab and you go look at the Tesla's core repository, and you go look at a bunch of the issues, you will find Arthur replying to many of these different folks, you'll find, you know, him talk, you know, like he's very much still involved. He's very much still, you know, working on um, different, he's, you know, like there, I, I can't speak for him, you know, or, or Kathleen directly, but like I, I the note, like what they were, I think what they were really arguing or saying was just that like, you know, there are certain things that were lacking from Tezos that they want to see or want, want somebody to build, see someone build, um, and obviously don't have decision-making authority over any of that. So mm. um, basically they were, they were just um, like expressing some of those, those thoughts, I think. And I think they're very valid concerns around like, you know, that we need to build better wallets that we need, you know, that we'd hope to see things like, you know, stable coins or, or whatnot. And uh, yeah, they're, they're, I mean, to answer the question though, I, I think um, without answering for them, I, I think it seems to me like they're, like if at least factually, if you go on GitLab and you look at the you know many of the issues and, and stuff, you'll see Arthur there. Cool. Do you think what people are perceiving is this decentralization, where like different groups and different people have kind of like the community is governing it in a lot of ways, and so you don't have maybe those founders going on stages in the same way or something like that? Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, and, and also not just that, like governance is. It's like at any meaningful scale, if you have have some form of like governance, it's going to be messy, right? And the other thing, and, and Tezos makes a lot of things cleaner and a lot of things better. It doesn't like solve the, you know, thousands year old uh, like challenge of governing, governing, you know, right? I mean, it's just like, but point being, um, uh, the other thing is like, you know, decentralization is messy. <laughs> uh, and like a lot of people want different things or a lot of people want, um, you know, want to raise and lower the status of different like priorities or people or whatever. And so that, and that's like obviously an age old, um, you know, sort mm -hmm. of behavior as well. So, um, so there's a lot of that as well, I think. And I think a lot of the things that people see from the outside are sort of indicative of, of just that kind of like messy ecosystem. And I think it's one of the things that I think about Ethereum, a lot of people criticize about Ethereum, but I actually think it's like, like, one of the most positive signals about Ethereum because it shows that it's something worth being controversial about, <laughs> like what's something mm. worth arguing about, right? Um, and same same thing with with Tezos. I think is like it's to a lot of people something worth arguing about and something worth, you know, sort of having different, uh, you know, uh, differences of opinion about. Yeah, it sounds also. I mean, I think you can see if you look across the ecosystem, you can see different networks have kind of at different stages along this path mm -hmm. and having some growing pains as well. Like if you look maybe at what, you know, Cosmos has experienced over the last few months um, and what, in a way, what you see is a path towards more decentralized power. And it's a, it's a bit messy sometimes, I think, but um, that's interesting. 
So let's move on to this validator community, the Tezos validator community. Was Tezos the first POS system? Am I wrong in thinking that it was? Or was it the first big one? <laughs> I think so. I think there was another one. Oh, there was like Steemit, I guess, before that, eh? Well, like NXT or whatever, that, that one. Um, oh, yeah. I think there's something called NXT. And then there's also something called like PureCoin or something like that. But the thing I'd say about POS is there's a huge misunderstanding about like, so there's, I feel like there's DPoS, which is like. Yeah. Delegated proof of stake. Mm-hmm. Um, that's an interesting one. The best way I've ever heard it is that it's kind of like inside baseball masquerading as civil resistance. So like that's a, <laughs> um, that one is, I think, not the, the goal here, right? Um, the thing that's unique about Tezos, I think, is that, that it has between 400 to 450 validators. It's like, it's definitely the largest validator community in turn, I, I would, I assume. Um, and if you actually go look on a map of like where all the validators are, like, you know, there's really good geographic distribution. But yeah, in general, you know, the, the validator community in Tezos is like been through a lot and mm-hmm. seen a lot. And from early on, I feel like the thing that difference, you know, has always differentiated Tezos from other real estate networks is just simply this big focus on self-baking and, and people hobbyists baking and stuff like that, rather than on prof- pure professionalization and data center based, you know, validation. And so that's definitely like one of the backbones of the network. And it's, and, and, and it segues really tightly into the governance question because the governance process is very high. It requires a very high um, consensus in order to um, move anything forward. And that gives uh, a lot of say to this very diverse validator community, um, which ranges mm-hmm. from exchanges to professionalized validators, to hedge funds, to you know people with just like a spare Linux machine that they're running a validator on. So there's like sort of this really, there's sort of this, the amendment process is very much like mediating the values and interests of all those uh, those different folks. And you you just used the term baking, which is unique to Tezos. And baking... French project. <laughs> what, does, what does baking mean? What is a baker? Baking equals staking, right? So, <laughs> Got it. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, the joke is that that's the one, you know, French origin project. So um, that's what, let's call it baking instead of uh, staking. Okay. And the bakers are the validators, basically, or block producers. Yeah. Producers. So I think, I think the, 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 there's a bit more maybe meaning to the words. So uh, mining, I don't know, in my head, mining, when you mine, you, you work a lot. And if you're lucky, you will find a, a gold nugget or something. While baking, it's it's a, it's a craft, so you, you just need to know how to do it, and then it's it's effortless. Like you can bake whenever you want, especially and, if you're confined at home. And you you put in some ingredients, and you get out some other ingredients, I guess. Yeah. So this was <laughs> a try to, to to put a big difference in uh, between the mining and baking, so that a- anybody, even with a Raspberry Pi at home, can can bake blocks. Is what kind of POS system, like what is the underlying consensus in, in Tezos? Is it Tendermint or is it something else? It's something else. Mm-hmm. I think it's uh, maybe Ouroboros is a more, is a more popular Ouroboros, algorithm okay. that is similar to ours. But they, they were developed at the same time. They share a lot of ideas, but also several differences. Cool. Cool. It, it's, a, it's a unique uh, algorithm as far as I know. Yeah, I was going to say the original... Um, Tezos proof of stake is diff- so that's the beauty of this whole amendment process thing. Like actually, the the nature of the consensus algorithm has changed as well. Not like massively, but like it's you know it's significant. Like, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's not a totally new model, but uh, but but all I'll say is that um, the original version of Tezos proof of stake was actually very very similar to like normal Nakamoto consensus. So oh. like basically, it, you, it's like imagine you took Bitcoin and, and instead of you know sort of your proof of work as the longest chain, you said, we'll just like, you know, basically have people endorse, you know, the endorse blocks, and then we'll slash people who try to double bake and try to endorse or bake multiple blocks, right? Um, And so basically, it's very similar. So longest chain based, um, you know, consensus algorithm. Like you sort of say there was a there's a new consensus algorithm used. Was that like the one that was it was launched with? Or was it actually changed mid? No, it was changed mid. Like there was, okay, there was a block, there is a block, there's a, an amendment called Babylon. Um, and, you know, the block before Babylon was activated, the, the network was baking with, you know, ME, which is called ME. Um, and then the 
the block that Babylon started, um, the network uh, switched over to um, Emmy Plus, which cool. is what the new one is. And Emmy, by the way, is named after Emmy Noether. Noether and, and, and if you read that name, um, you know, it basically spells no ether. <laughs> so, or, yeah. <laughs> just another uh, old, Tesla old Easter egg. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, this actually leads us, I think, in a nice way to the governance and how what an amendment actually is in the system. Because you've mentioned it twice now. Are amendments like EIPs? Are they like proposals? Are they... I'm trying to come up with, I'm trying to picture an equivalent. Are they more like upgrade packages? What are they? They're upgrades. So the, okay. formally an amendment is a piece of a common code for now. So maybe one day we'll change the definition of uh, what's an amendment, but for now it's a piece of a common code. So it might start as a markdown written somewhere with a few ideas, but you cannot propose that. You need to write it down. You need to test it or run it and do whatever you have to do to make sure there are no mistakes, and then you can propose it okay. to the network. Uh, so you inject an operation in the network with, uh, with your proposal. And then by that, you start uh, an amendment process that is, um, for now, is a three-month process where we do a bunch of uh, testing and, and revision. And, and then after, if, if all goes well, people are going to vote several times. And at the end of the three months, they will activate your piece of code. That's cool. the idea. Are there is there a single client implementation of Tezos or are there multiple? So for now, there is one main uh, node uh, that is the, the one in Ocaml. Okay. And like I said, there is a, so basically we, we split because of the, this design. The technically is split into parts. You really have what we call the shell that does the storage and the networking, mm -hmm. and then you have the protocol. Um, so because of this clear separation, actually the people some people came came to. So the foundation said, we'd like to write a, a shell in Rust, what do you say? Okay. And as soon as you can take a piece of a camel protocol, uh, the, what we call the economic protocol, and, and run it on your shell, you're, you're good. So you're good. That's what and, they're doing. And does that, does that almost take the form of a new client then? Like, would that be an option for somebody who wanted to, like, it would be synced together and they could run it? That yeah, or sure, the sure. They, will, they will speak the same protocol over the network, the same operations, the same everything. Okay, so the amendments are like it sounds like they're they're not quite the full update or upgrade code finished, but they're like very, no, they are they are they have to be finished. Okay, it yeah. is finished. No, 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 like, like it they, sounds like, like you because you, there's like this three month period. You wouldn't change. Yeah, yeah, it but after there, that, it's or? yeah, but it's no, no, no. It, okay, it, okay. Once it, you put it in, like you, you put it into the process, and like basically people propose it, it gets yeah. accepted. Hopefully, maybe not. Or, you know, whatever. Um, and then uh, you know it goes through this. Uh, this. I mean, originally it was like if anyone proposed that thing would then be put up for a vote, um, or whatever. But um, basically now it's um, you know you put an amendment in. Um, it goes through the the amendment cycle um, for uh, three months and then is automatically activated if it's approved basically in two different votes. Um, okay. And both of those votes have, you know, thresholds at which they, you know, have participation and have a supermajority that need to be met. How do you get, how do you, in the, in the governance side of things, how do you get engagement? Like, is it a, is it a sort of active enough community that you actually have a lot of voting or do you find the turnout medium yeah. and again it's um, linked to the delegation like to answer very very directly the, the participation has actually been pretty impressive and as marco says it's because the piece of delegation basically like as a share of the stake i mean in the first one we did you know in athens it was like 88 percent of the stake um which you know in the threshold was at the time 80 percent um mm. but uh and that's about 200 some odd bakers voting basically. So, and that's on behalf of tens of, at the time it was like maybe said tens of thousands of people uh, in the community. Um, in the more recent ones, I don't think it was that high. I think it was in the seventies or so. I'd have to actually go back and check, but um, we've never even come close to missing the quorum and the super majority. Uh, I'm sure at some point we'll have to think about stuff like that and worry about stuff, but we've taken some, as a community, we've taken some preventative measures around, you know, basically trying to make the amendment process more resilient to certain types of attacks and, and types of flaws in terms of how the quorum 
adjusted and stuff like that. One thing also is um, that exists is basically this uh, web application called Telesagora, um, where basically there's like it's kind of it, it's kind of like ETH research meets Decred's Paltea in a way. So it has like a lot of the different folks from you know whether it's Nomadic or you know Cryptium or Arthur or whomever the language teams application developers, et cetera, tooling developers, et cetera, all writing about different stuff that they're working on, different ideas that they have, ways to improve Tezos, stuff like that. Um, and then you have like a sort of a visualization tool that also contains information about the amendments and stuff like that. So people can mm-hmm. understand what's uh, what's going on. And in the future, I think that that'll include a lot more functionality around trying to help with like long-term planning or other kinds of governance tools like signaling voting and stuff like that down the road as well would be um, really useful. But that's, those are like a couple of, I think that's like a one place where a lot of, you can see a lot of the stuff sort of play out and where a lot of ideas get surfaced or get like revealed um, first um, before they make their way into the amendment process. That actually, that's funny. Somebody went in the preparation for this interview, somebody actually mentioned that your governance dashboard and UI was really nicely built and designed and was curious who who did that and it's a it's been a group effort um and big effort there's been a big effort to make sure it's a neutral platform um as well by the way so um it's really governed in like a multi-stakeholder that that in the long term it'll be more apparent i think but it's um very much governed in like a multi-stakeholder way and very neutral very conservative um way so like one of the fears of pos systems is this idea of like like centralization of power? Do you have mitigations to like avoid some sort of centralization or some sort of, yeah, inflationary force that like puts more power in the hands of few? I think like a lot of that probably has to just be community efforts to move delegators off of exchanges and things like that um, and into self-custody and stuff like that. And even small transitions of people off of exchanges and things, I feel like is probably a good thing, right? So... Because a lot of people, I mean, most of the stake, uh, most of the tokens are staked, either delegated or owned. And uh, yeah, and the fees that the delegation service take are pretty pretty high. I guess that was, that was, I, I guess in my mind, I had the idea that people were not all delegating. But if you have a high sort of delegation rate, then yeah, I guess everybody is benefiting somewhat equally. I think the right way to look at this is that if you do not take a part in that, you are punished. Well, then you are rewarded if you do take part in that. That's the idea. So I kind of want to move on to like how Tezos is thinking about privacy and zero-knowledge proof stuff. Mark, you're a cryptographer at Nomadic, so maybe you can actually speak a little bit about like where is where does privacy or ZKPs exist in the Tezos system? So... As of now, it's fairly simple because they don't. So (laughs) that's a short answer. Uh, I hope they will be, and it will be part of the next amendment. And so the first thing we're going to introduce is a sapling protocol, which we get from Zcash. And it allows to exchange token privately. So basically, it allows to exchange any kind of token privately. So it's a first step that will allow to... Uh, the, I guess the most simple example, if, if you do an STO, maybe the people that participate in this STO don't want any, everybody to know what happens. So you can do an STO in a private fashion with uh, the next subtrain. Hmm. So that's the first step. Maybe it's worth uh, pointing out that um, so the way we are in- integrating uh, sapling is inside uh, the smart contract language. So basically every smart contract will be able to have its own uh, shielded pool with the shielded tokens. This, uh, that, I actually, I did read about this. So this implementation of Sapling, I'm glad we covered like what amendments are because this would be, I guess it's, is it finished or is it a work in progress? Where, at what stage is it? So it's been finished for six months. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so it's already been like, it would be in the next amendment, I guess, that would then go into review. What does it mean, though, to implement sapling? Like, I, I, heard, I read that. It was like implementation of sapling into kind of an, an upgrade, an amendment of te- for Tezos. But, like, is, it's not going to – you're not sort of saying that you're going to enable tez, Tezis to move 
into shielded accounts or something like that. Right. This is not like you're all of a sudden Tezos is a privacy coin. And so what is what does that implementation mean then? I guess it touches on two parts. It was mainly two parts, and they, they, they represent pretty well the two per, the person that works on that, uh, Mark and, and I. So there was one part was uh, understanding sapling, uh, understanding the specification that they wrote for the protocol, which, is, which was very well written, and, and it's very, very complex. And I, I think Mark did an excellent work at that. And then there was a lot of plumbing. A lot, a lot of plumbing, like the boring part of making languages work on the Rust and the Camel, oh, yeah. and then making it efficient in the protocol and a bunch of other stuff. That uh, and that's where I landed a hand. But did you rewrite Sapling in OCaml? Is that what you would have had to do? Uh, part of it. Okay. So the 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 people at the Electric Coin Company they were nice enough not only to uh, design a great protocol but also to implement it in, in Rust, in a last library, and to make it, uh, make it available open source with a, with a reasonable license. Uh, so we just, uh, we started from that, we took that, and then we built the pieces that were missing. That's why okay. we call it an integration, because we took a large chunk of their work, uh, but there was another large chunk that we had to, to do on top of that. And Mark was the, the main drive behind that. So basically, what, what we started working with was the Zcash library, probably for Zcash, which basically gives us all the primitive, what we call primitive in cryptography, which are signature, zero knowledge proof, etc. So all of that we had to bind to be able to use it in OCaml. And then what we did, we, there is a piece of code that you will be able to see in the amendment, which is called libsapling, which is basically putting all of these primitives together to have like two main operations, one which will go to the client, which is for the transaction, which allows you to enter an address and amount and you for the transaction, and one that is going into the protocol, which is called a verify update. And what it does is that it takes a, what we call a sapling state, which is basically a, a blockchain. It takes a snapshot of a Zcash blockchain, it's a sapling state. It takes a transaction, it uh, verifies the validity of the transaction, uh, applies the transaction and gives out the updated state. So we did both those parts, put one in the client and one in the protocol. And uh, as Marco said, the one in the protocol is not done as a first-class transaction, but as a Michelson opcode. And so we created new Michelson type for a sapling state and sapling transaction. And we offer this as a... So now in Michelson, you can basically, the storage of your contract can handle uh, what we call the shielded pool which could be seen as a snapshot of uh, the Zcash blockchain. But it's not its not actually connected to the Zcash blockchain at all, right? No, it's no, not at a, all. Yeah, yeah. And every smart contract has its own pool that is yeah. not connected with us. Got it. I'm trying to, I'm like, after you say this, I'm just trying to think of other use cases. Like if somebody, would, would it be something like, a de- an outside developer team wanted to build something that integrated with Tezos and use Sapling? Is this sort of, I'm trying to picture like what that would actually look like. Well, really, you can, you can transfer, you can think of it like that. You can transfer any type of token as long as you are able to write down the rules that uh, govern how you can buy and sell this token. But you can't make Tezos, Tezis private through it. Yeah, no, you, you actually can because, because the rule to, so to be more concrete, if you, the rule to buy and sell a Tezi is basically giving one Tez or uh, giving one Tez back, right? I see. So I can make a smart contract that says oh, cool. if you give the smart contract uh, five Tez yeah. and you want to create five shifted Tez, I will say, okay. So you're creating, you basically allow for anonymity pools to be built on top of Tezos in a way. And you could send your Tezis into it. And if there were enough people inside, it would potentially like obfuscate the fact that your Tezis are in there. Okay. I can see two main use cases. Uh, One, which uh, with Marco, we talked quite a lot with the uh, small adoption team that we have here in Nomadic. Mm -hmm. And it's STOs because it's really the big thing as of now, and there are actually pretty big legal constraints uh, that uh, privacy can uh, lift. Another use case would be to uh, actually exchange TZ in a shielded way, 
And uh, I don't know if someone will do that. I, I guess someone. Uh, there are several ways to do that. So maybe we'll see several yeah. directions taken. But we really insist on giving out uh, Mikkelsen instruction and people do what they want with that. All right. So what what was the challenge of doing this? You sort of said, you know, it's a different language. So you're kind of like, you know, taking something that was written all in Rust, bringing it into OCaml. But were there any other challenges or what was it like to do this? So uh, I guess the there were a few challenges. The first challenge was that it's a pretty big protocol and uh mistakes are quite fatal. So I had to go through the spec for a long time and make sure I did not miss any points. And then there was one big challenge, which was the storage part. Basically, as I said, we have to handle a blockchain, which is a UTXO blockchain, yeah. which is then defined on ours. And all of this in a storage that was made for smart contracts, which are supposed to handle a few values, basically. So we had to quite uh, heavily optimized the storage. Luckily, this problematic had already came up with the big map in Tezos, which is a big data structure that we handle for smart contract. But basically, usually a smart contract storage is uh, not handled lazily in the sense that you take the storage, you deserialize everything, you work on that, and then you serialize everything and put back in place because mm -hmm. it's meant to hold a few integers or maybe a little array, but not much more. So we had to change all of that to make it handle in a lazy way, meaning that we just pick out the part that we need to apply the transaction. So I guess this was a pretty big challenge and handle some data structure that are a bit more complicated than usual, like Merkle trees and et cetera. Yeah. I'm wondering, did the size of like, because you're if you're integrating Sapling, I guess you're, the idea here is you'd actually be running, like generating ZK snark proving keys and all the all, like this whole thing the snark would actually have to be generated like you know we've heard about the challenges of doing that on other smart contract platforms just because of the, the sheer size of it does that like does that matter in this context is this also something that you had to take into account so the the size of the storage definitely matters because the then the user pay for it yeah but we couldn't do anything about that Mm. So we didn't do anything in the sense that the storage will grow linearly with the number of transactions that is applied. And it has to be that way. And it's quite fundamental because otherwise you don't have privacy. Yeah. So any optimization to the storage in that sense is not possible because it breaks privacy. Right? Because if you don't keep all the noise, basically you don't have noise and you don't have privacy. So the, storage, also, oh, so, so, so the storage will grow. What we could optimize is the way we handle it so that we don't deserialize everything and just pick out the parts we need to apply our transaction. Got it. Do you, do you, um, like, do you keep up to date on all of the more recent zero-knowledge proof like papers and like ideas coming out? You know, you decided to implement Sapling, which is a finished, in a way, finished, proven thing. But are you also considering, like, implementing some of the newer stuff, even coming out of ECC? Yes, we definitely are. So not for this upgrade. The thing with zero knowledge is that, well, you need to implement a system and you need to write everything in a circuit form to be able yeah. to prove the statement. So all of this is quite a big work. So if we just wanted to do transaction with shielded tokens, we didn't need any of these. Sapling uses a very efficient proving system, which is called system. Mm -hmm which major drawback being that you need a trusted setup, but the trusted setup has already been done. So basically it removes, because we are actually using the trusted setup of Zcash. Got it. So it removes the big drawback, so there is no reason to use anything else. But for future projects, we are looking into other things. And the one we starting looking at, and we actually have a new hire at the privacy team that is working on that for uh, two weeks, so it's very recent. It's called uh, Virgo. So it's a trustless uh, system, which is obviously really practical uh, for us and has a okay performance compared to post 16. So you just mentioned Virgo. Virgo, where is that from? Like, uh, do you have, maybe we can share a link or something in the show notes. Yeah, sure. So it's from uh, people from uh, Berkeley and uh, Texas and Miami University. Cool. It's going to appear uh, at this uh, year SNP, Security and Privacy Conference. 2020. Nice. What are you doing with Virgo exactly? So I would 
come back to the what we are able to do with sapling is basically handling one shielded pool and making transfer in that one. But really, the next step would be imagine that you have, let's say, a stable coin, which would be represented as a token on the on the Tezos blockchain. And with this stable coin, you want to have privacy, so you can use sapling for that. And uh, let's say that someone else is doing an STO and creates a shielded pool with the token representing some part of a company, for example. So if you want to use your uh, shielded stable coin to buy this uh, shielded token, well, actually, you can't with sapling because we're only able to do a transfer inside one pool. Mm. And there is a pretty big technical reason behind that is that to be able to do that, we need to be able to handle an arbitrary computation in a zero-knowledge proof. Why is that? Is because you basically, you need to be able to uh, decapsulate inside the zero-knowledge circuit all the value that you have on the one side and all the value on the other side. So to be able to know that the guy is paying, let's say, uh, 10 euros to get one share mm -hmm. and then check uh, the condition that it's okay or not. And so to do this, it's, uh, well, it's technically a bit more complicated because you have to be able to handle arbitrary computation and you need to be much more flexible than what we are with trusted setup systems. So for this, we need a, either a trustless uh, system or a universal system. And uh, the reason why we're looking into Virgo, well, first, it has very nice assumptions. So it has the the same security assumption as a uh, Fry-based system like they use in uh, Starkware. It doesn't have to use uh, all those pairings, etc., which are really good for efficiency, but are a bit more complicated to handle. Basically, the only cryptographic primitives are hashes, which is really simple in that regard. Let's say the advantage it has over uh, the Fry-based system is uh, that it computes uh, directly on the big fine, uh, finite field of big characteristics. So meaning that the, the computation that you do in the circuits can be done in a finite field that looks like a lot, uh, those you can use in row 16, which means that you can do very efficiently in zero knowledge, a tip curve operations. But basically it means technically that we could reuse all of the work that we have in sapling, all of the complicated circuits that we have in sapling and handle in zero knowledge, all the cryptographic primitive that we're using in sapling, which then we can basically glue another zero-knowledge proof from a very different system to our sapling system to enable to do a sapling transaction in between pools and uh, compute in zero-knowledge and the balance to enforce some uh, price. Hmm. So that is the long-term plan, but it's, it's just a plan for now. There is nothing. We just started to look into that. But basically, cool. it would allow to, to extend with a minimal... Uh, technical burden, uh, what we have in sapling to, to make it used in between pools. Nice. What kind of timeline do you even imagine this having, though? Like, you, you say it's not in this amendment. So, like, are you thinking, like, two years out, one year out? Like, how often are your amendments, actually? Uh, but the minimal timeline is three months for an amendment. Okay. But obviously, this will not be even in the next amendment. I would say it's two years from now. Okay. And in the meantime, we have something else that we would like to release regarding privacy, which is the zero knowledge set membership that Marco was talking about. And uh, this, this, it comes uh, from uh, our discussion with uh, our adoption team. It's basically so now we are able to let some people create their shielded token. But most of the time for STOs, etc., you do need to have some access control for that for legal reason. And so uh, zero-knowledge set membership is simply that you can uh, commit to a set on chain that is not public, but you can prove with zero-knowledge that you are in this set without telling who you are. Oh, nice. So it would be able to do access control on the shielded pool, yeah. which if, if done uh, not privately, obviously would be make the shielded pool useless. In general, access control is a very, it's a basic uh, building block for, for smart contracts. It's a very requested feature. This is this sort of a mitigation of some potential privacy leak if people were to use Sapling? Is that what you just explained? It was like if they were to use this integration of Sapling, there could be some ways of it, of 
like the users being discovered and this is a way to control for that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. it's not just that. Cool. Is there any other privacy tech that might be interesting for us to chat about um, that's actually being built on Tezos? And it doesn't necessarily have to have zero knowledge proofs at its heart, but are, is there anything else privacy focused? So for now, we have uh, unchained voting amendment. We are looking at that with uh, Marco and other developers, Vincent, and uh, some uh, people from Inria to basically do private voting. But cool. it's quite, so we are still at the very design phase because it's, it could be quite controversial because it's not obvious since we have a delegation system. It's not obvious that we want to hide the vote, right? It's like if you're uh, your representative uh, for the state, you don't know what these votes are. It doesn't make yeah. sense. That's interesting. That's actually, that's that's such an interesting point that's come up a few times. Like this idea of validation and privacy. There's these use cases or these cases where you're like, yeah, it would be really great if, you know, people could privately delegate to a validator or if they could privately vote on something, which we do sort of see in the real world. But when it comes to the validation world, as far as I've understood, a lot of the crypto economics are based around transparency in a way, like reputation matters. And so people need to be able to see who votes for what. Um, and so when you add privacy, you actually, in, the, in certain cases, like potentially undermine like other levers to keeping some sort of control in the system. And I guess you're facing a similar kind of question. Yeah, it yours. is quite similar indeed. It's a bit different because for the consensus part, uh, you can actually do private staking. It's quite complicated because if you do it, by the, well, first, obviously, you need to be able to produce zero knowledge proof that you behave correctly. That's one thing. Another thing is that you have a huge side channel in the sense that if I own 20% of the stake, yeah. I will produce 20% of the block. Uh, even if everything is in zero knowledge, it doesn't make sense to hide that if I can see the state that everybody has. But uh, there is actually a paper uh, that handles that, but it's quite complicated and we do not plan to implement it because it's, it's not our priority. Yeah, but you do get this kind of interesting uh, question. So it, it's funny when usually you have a problem and you, you try really hard to find a solution. And so we've been talking with these researchers and they were like, yeah, so we have uh, 10 solutions, but do you really have a problem? Like, <laughs> uh, it's been really like, it's been two hours of this uh, the first time we met. It's um, funny. For I example, the, they were asking... The expression there is something like, when you're a hammer, everything's a nail, or something like that. Is that it? <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, for example, you were saying, uh, are you afraid that uh, you will not see uh, what your basically what your validators are are doing, or maybe a concentration of power, etc. So this is one concern. The other concern, maybe, is um, for which privacy would be actually very good. Is uh, are you afraid of uh, bribing, like people yeah. buying votes or selling votes? So that so it really depends on on the on the network and on the the community kind of community that you have. So maybe right now privacy is not, especially at the beginning, I think, remember where uh, Jacob was saying, uh, we spent a good a good amount of time understanding and explaining to others how the, the voting works. So I think at that point, not having any privacy was actually very good because everybody mm -hmm. could just see the votes, so who was doing what and how. So it was very educational, let's say. Uh, maybe in one year, it will be very important to have some form of privacy in votes because there will be more controversial, there will be more well, I don't know. Uh, we're trying to. So that's why we're 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 studying solutions, but we're not. We don't have any plan, concrete plan. Got it. Are any of the other teams also working on privacy-related projects that you know of? So we know we yeah we know we work pretty closely with the people at Cryptium, and we know that they've been working at um, extending uh, what we have now. That is uh, one contract with one asset that is shielded. Uh, to have a smart contract with a um, multi-asset uh, uh, shielded pool. So basically, you will have. Uh, you can imagine it as having uh, like Zcash today with the tokens of different colors, and you can exchange only the the tokens of the right colors. Interesting. So this is like this is extending on your implementation of Sapling, then. Yeah. So they will need to change the. They will need to modify Sapling. So they will need to change the circuit, and they will need to redo. Uh, the trusted setup if they decide to go with the growth 16 again. Okay. This has the advantage that you will have uh, potentially larger shielded pools because yeah. uh, you can sort of merge several uh, 
functionally equivalent contracts that they do more or less the same thing, but for different assets. You can just put them all together and you will enjoy better privacy because you have a, a larger anonymity set. Yeah, it sounds like cool. And this is Cryptium who's doing this. Chris goes and friends. All right. Well, thank you all for coming on the show and explaining to all of us a little bit more about Tezos and where it's at today. Also, its relationship to privacy and how, you know, you're also looking to integrate zero knowledge proofs into the system. Yeah. Thanks for having us on. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Cool. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. <laughs>